Welcome to another inspirational message by Pastor Ron Hammonds, Senior Pastor at Golden Triangle Church on the Rock in Beaumont, Texas. For more information about Church on the Rock and Ron Hammonds Ministries, visit cotr.com. Tonight, I again want to welcome you to our church and just wish you a very Merry Christmas. I am so glad that we celebrate a season in which Christ came to earth. Uh, I know, uh, again, let me run a disclaimer. Some of you are saying, well, you know, this is really not the season he was born. I'm not talking about him being born. I'm talking about the, the conception. You know, Mary saying, be it unto me according to thy word. This is that season. Isn't that great? This is the season of the visitation of the angel Gabriel. This is the season in which God sent his son we believe, of course, that life begins at conception. And uh, this is a, a, a celebration. You know, uh, the world never has it right, okay? They really, really try, but they just can't get it right. But thank God we actually have an opportunity to participate in a season in which the world can never disclaim the reason for Christmas. It's written in the very first part, Christ, Christ. It's the day. That's what it means. The day of Christ. <laughs> and isn't that amazing? Praise God. And that's exactly what happened uh, 2,000 years ago. Well, Jesus changed everything. You know, it wasn't the first time that Jesus changed everything. Okay? John tells us that in the very beginning was the Word, talking about Jesus. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. And, you know, that Word, John says in the first chapter, it took upon flesh and dwelled among us. And we beheld him as the only begotten of the Father. Wow, he was full of grace. Amazing. That Jesus changed everything when God decided to make us for him. Because all things, the Bible said, were made for him. And all things were made by him. And all things continue to exist because of him. We are his. Isn't that amazing? And so Jesus changed everything in the beginning. And then he came to earth about 2,000 years ago and changed everything again. And he gave us an opportunity to know him. And he prepared an eternity. What Jesus did 2,000 years ago is he purchased Eternity. Eternity was always in the heart and the mind of God. But Jesus bought it with his own blood. That's what he bought for us. He bought eternal life for every person who would accept it. Every person who would receive it. Isn't that amazing? That's like, you know, being this gazillionaire and going out and, you know, buying uh, all the chocolate in the world and saying, you know, if you want chocolate, all you have to do is believe that I'll give it to you and come and get it. 
Do you know those that go without chocolate? Why? 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 Well, even greater than that, it would be like buying all the food or all the water in the world and saying, here it is free, but you have to come and get it from me. But I want to give it to you free. Because, you know, if it doesn't flow through me, it will kill you. But you can have all you want. You can drink all you want through me. And then people won't come. And they end up drinking the poison water all their life. And ending up dying when they could live forever. Why? Well, many times it's because of pride or just unwillingness to imagine that you have to depend on someone else, on something else, but you do. You do. We are totally dependent in life on him and especially in eternal life on him. And not only did he save our soul from an eternity in hell, he also gave us the chance to miss the hell of this life. Wow. He gave us his word so we could learn from his word. And if we will apply this word to our life, it's, it's, like, it's like having a formula that works. It's like finding the key to that lock that when you open it, all the good things in there can be yours. You can walk into that door where all the grace of God has stored up all the goodness of God in that room that God has for us. It's a room of righteousness, a room of holiness. It's a room of sanity. It's a room of hope. It's a room of joy. It's a room of healing. It's a room of peace. You know, it's, it's a room of eternal life. And we can enjoy all the things that God has provided for us through the blood of Christ by unlocking the door and walking through. Jesus told the apostle Peter, I have given you keys to the kingdom and you can unlock in the earth what is unlocked in heaven. You can have access on earth to things that are happening in heaven. And if you so desire, you can lock up things that I have refused to allow in heaven. That is exactly what Matthew was talking to us about. Our capacity, our ability that Jesus gave us to lock and unlock the blessings of God in our lives and to lock up those curses that the devil wants to use to destroy our life. Well, when Jesus died and was buried, on the third day he rose from the dead. He appeared to more than 500 over the next 40 days, and he showed himself alive, the Bible says, by many infallible proofs. And then he called his disciples out onto the hill 
outside of Jerusalem called the Mount of Olives, and there he ascended into the heavens. And a voice from heaven told them that were watching, listen, uh, you know, why, why stand you here gazing into heaven? You know, this same Jesus that went away will come again in the same manner. And then they went back into Jerusalem, and there they spent a week praying. They spent a week seeking God, and, and at the end of that week, they were all in, in one room, in one accord, and there were about 120 of them in this upper room in Jerusalem. They're on Mount Zion in the city of David. And there on a Sunday morning, the Holy Spirit, on the first day of the week, on, on the day when Pentecost had fully come, the Holy Spirit baptized them with power and fire. And miracles began to happen and boldness came into their heart and their life. And, and, and when they were locked up for fear, when they were saved but afraid to be a witness and, and, and powerless to witness, here they opened the doors, they went out into the streets and they began to share the love and the word and the grace of Almighty God. And the Holy Spirit working with them began to do miracles. And there that day 3,000 people were born again. 3,000 Jews from every nation under heaven. They gave their heart and their life to Jesus Christ because of the things they saw and the things they heard. And that day the church of the living God was birthed. It was birthed from a home group of born-again Christians who got themselves together and prayed and sought God until they were filled to overwhelming capacity with the Holy Spirit and fire in their souls. And then they began to change their city. Wasn't very long. We can read through the book of Acts. That's what I'm reading through right now in my, in my uh, mornings. Uh, first thing I do when I get up in the morning is I and, and read, and, and I'm reading, and, and, and you know, even this week, reading about that, that next 5,000 that were born again. And, and, and then, you know, I mean, the church began to grow and grow and grow. It became powerful. And certainly they were being persecuted. And certainly the, the, the other, other opposing religious factions did not appreciate the fact that, they, that, that, that people were getting born again. And, and they were, you know, coming to this new church. But God was moving. People were so moved and so filled. People were doing strange things. They were selling property and, and bringing the money and, 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 and to the church. And the, and the church was using it to feed the poor and to, and to reach out and to, and to do the work of the Lord all throughout the city and more and more and more people. And, and, and you know, it, it was amazing. And the Lord was adding every day. He was adding to the church those that, 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 that were being saved. It was amazing. They were continuing with, with, with one accord and following in the footsteps of what the apostles were teaching. They were praying together. They were eating together. They were fellowshipping together. They were all in unity and they were all strengthened. And even though the persecutions were coming, yet they were, they, they were still together. Feeling the, the unction of the birth of this church and, and they were just, you know, growing. And, and, and it ended up that... One of the apostles, one of the very first disciples called. The brother of John, named James. He was arrested. It was probably about the year A.D. 44. 
give or take a little. And he was executed, martyred. It wasn't their first and it wouldn't be their last. But the church continued. The church began to spread, reached out into Judea, into Samaria, reached out into Caesarea, to Antioch, reached out into what is now Turkey, over to Greece, Rome, somewhere probably around A.D. 60 or 61. There is another pastor of the church in Jerusalem. As we understand it, as, as best I can uh, find out from tradition and from the best, you know, uh, research that we can do, which is not 100% sure, this pastor, James was his name, he would be martyred in A.D. 69, one year before the destruction of Jerusalem and He evidently was a very practical-minded pastor. I believe him to be the half-brother of Jesus. And at about A.D. 61, 60, 61, 62, 63, right in there somewhere is about the best we can figure. James writes a book that we have in the New Testament. It has been contended through the years by scholars in almost every age that this book does not belong in the New Testament. <laughs> it was very controversial with, uh, with some of the well-known scholars throughout the ages. Why would someone say that this book does not belong in the New Testament? Because the book of James teaches a more practical approach to your faith. And some have suggested that the book of James goes against the writings of Paul because the apostle Paul said clearly throughout all of his writings that we are saved by grace and not by works. And believe me, that is the truth, okay, without exception. And the Apostle Paul, of course, is that apostle to the Gentiles, and we are a part of the Gentile church and a part of the Gentile generation. Many imagine that because James says things like, Faith without works is dead. That James, therefore, is against the message of grace. And somehow they have stood Paul and James on, on two different opposing sides. But that 
is not the truth, okay? Our, our earliest church fathers accepted this, the earliest that we have around the third century, you know, uh, in the 200s. Pastor Ken can certainly explain this to you a whole lot better than I can, okay? Uh, <laughs> yes, he can. <laughs> uh, and I should have gotten him to explain it to me this week, but at any rate, here we go. All right, but nonetheless, the Apostle Paul teaches that the faith that we have in this inner working in our hearts, the faith that we have towards God saves us. And James, as, as the Apostle Paul was teaching, he's absolutely correct. But the Bible tells us we need an apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, and teacher for the perfecting of the saints. We need, you know, these five reflections of the gospel of Jesus Christ because there are reflections and perspectives. One of the things that we used to have in the church back in, it, especially turn of the century and, you know, century and, and, and the 20s, the 30s, the 40s, the 50s, you may remember the 60s were revivals. Y'all remember revivals? Oh, man, revivals, yeah, you get an evangelist in, you have a revival. I mean, some folks still have, Brother Vaughn, who goes to church here on Sunday mornings, uh, you know, he held more than 300 revivals for the uh, Southern Baptist Association, uh, Southern Baptist Convention, and I mean, a revivalist, I mean, you come in and woo, boy, you know, I'm, I, when I started pastoring a church, you know, we had, a, you know, a fall revival, a spring revival, I mean, I went and did revival for Pastor Ken, I did a whole week-long revival for Pastor Ken, you know. He had to work. He was pastoring in Hope, Arkansas. He had to work. I had to mow the churchyard to have revival. But we had, you know, I mowed it. You know, we. You're welcome. What good days. And, uh, you know, revival. I think you came and held revival or two for me probably, yeah. 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 But one of the things I never appreciated about revivals, never fully appreciated as a pastor, and I've shared this with a number of evangelists. It wasn't that, you know, it wasn't that, you know, there wasn't a heightened awareness of Jesus. There was. But, but, a, but an evangelist got to teach it and leave it with the people. As a pastor, I had to teach it and live it with the people. Hello? Y'all ever been to a seminar? Came home? <laughs> yeah. Came home to what? You came home to a pastor that had to teach it and live it with you instead of teach it and leave it with you. There is a difference. There's a difference in going around all of the nation and, and hollering timber and cutting down the trees and having all the excitement and then somebody has to stay there and clean up the mess and make furniture out of that and plane it and, and, you know, and sand it down and make it look like something and work for the next 20, 30, 40 years. It takes a lot to be a spirit-filled, tongue-talking, believing in healing pastor for 30 years in one place. Yeah, because you can go from town to town and yell timber and be the hero. You know, I can get more people out of the bars, out of the jails, out of the ditches, and get them in church and get them saved. I can get more kids on the bus long as I don't have to stay there and change the oil in the bus and drive the bus every day and every week for the next five years and, and, and you know, end up uh, uh, getting, you know, uh, uh, 
Now, somebody has to teach it and live it with the people. And that's what James did. As opposed to what Paul did. James was a pastor. And the Apostle Paul, from his perspective, and it's a correct perspective, and it is the truth, and you cannot deny it, and James never did, that we are saved by grace through faith, and that not of ourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. But James is also correct in that our faith toward God saves our soul, but the works that we do because we have faith in God, we don't work you know, to get born again. We work because we are born again. And if you are not working and your life is not changing and something hadn't happened, then you may not have gotten saved in that revival. If we happen to go and get you out of the out of the ditches every week and we can't get you up in the middle of the road and can't get you living and productive, then perhaps the guy that yelled timber and went off and drew, you know, uh, maybe we need to revisit here because I want you to know that faith, if you have faith, it will produce works. And that's what James is talking about. He's not anti-grace. He is simply measuring your faith by what you're willing to do for God. I'm going to be preaching a sermon at some point on believing. Let me give you the four points real quick. Believers pray. Believers give. Believers pray, give. Let me think of the third one. Believers Wit, no, believers witness. And number four, believers believe. You know, this is what believers do. They pray, they give, they witness, and they believe. That's what believers do, they believe. And if you believe, you'd be doing something about it. If you believe, your life should be changing. And that's what James talks about. He's in a very difficult place, the, perhaps the most difficult place to ever have started a church. He is in Jerusalem. He is, he is right in the middle of, 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 of what happened to Jesus. He is, he, you know, given that he is, as I believe, the half-brother of Jesus, he was not a disciple. He was not an, an apostle. He was not even a believer in Jesus as Messiah until perhaps after Jesus had been crucified, dead, buried, resurrected, and appeared to him, and then he becomes, uh, you know, a, a, a follower of Christ. And here he is trying to pastor people like Peter and John and, and, and you know, Nathaniel and Matthew and Bartholomew. And, I mean, here he's trying to, to, to pastor uh, people who, I mean, who are these magnificent Men and women of God. And they're just formulating this New Testament doctrine. So we began in James chapter 1, the verse 1. He writes, James. We know that James wrote this because he says James. <laughs> James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ 
Some early manuscripts leave this copulative and out. Recognizing that James perhaps is making a very strong statement that he is the bondservant of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. That he is holding Jesus as the image of Almighty God. He's writing to the 12 tribes who are scattered abroad, who have been dispersed all over the earth. He's writing to them as a Jew who believes in Jesus as Messiah. He's writing to them as a pastor of the church in Jerusalem. He's writing to them as one who had this experience beyond their knowledge, their comprehension. He's writing to one as one that was born again to Jews. And he says to them, verse 2, My brethren, including himself as one of them, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Hold on a second. Has this guy been pounded in the head yet? What is he doing here? What is he, what is he intimating? What is he suggesting to us? He's suggesting to us that we count it joy. He's suggesting to us that we somehow make contact and embrace the idea that various trials do not have to spell disaster for our spirit. Okay, are y'all ready? Count it all joy. Just decide beforehand that the persecutions, the afflictions, the tests, the trials, the tribulations, the various pressures that we undergo, it's not going to spell disaster for us. It's not going to put us in a place to where all of a sudden we look like we lost our best friend. Yes, we go through difficult times, but he's encouraging us to understand that difficult times are going to be a part of this life. And that's what Jesus said. He said, in this world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, he said. Be of good cheer. He said, don't let tough times depress you. You know, that can be just a choice in our life. I know it may not seem like that, but believe me, it can. It can be a choice to decide that the things that he's going to talk about and the pressures that he is about to go through and has gone through, he is writing here to Jews who have been being persecuted for generations. He's writing to people who understand persecution. He's writing to people who don't expect anything but persecution. They don't expect anything but affliction. They don't expect anything to happen in their lives but to be, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, undergo prejudice. He's saying to them, listen, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing you can know something. You can know something before you get to your next trial, your next temptation, your next test. You can know something. You can know that the testing of your faith 
is your chance to build and produce patience. What is he asking for? He's asking us to give credibility to the fact that God is with us in every temptation, every test, and every trial. He's trying to get us to set our minds before we have a problem that we have already decided that we are not going to let the problem drive our life. We're not going to let our disappointments get into the, in, in, into the captain's chair in our lives. That we are not going to submit our lives to all of the problems that we might face in life. Problems perhaps that you know, we cannot control, that might be happening to others throughout the world that didn't even do anything, but even the problems that we may cause ourselves. We are not going to allow the problem to get into the driver's seat of our life. Produces patience. This Greek word patience is a very interesting word, patience. Allow me to put another word in its place. For this testing of your faith, this testing of your trust in God, that God has it, that God can handle it, that God's bigger than the problem you're facing, that God's bigger than the trial that you're going through, that God, that, 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 that God really is God. And that you really are his child. And that he really cares about you. And that, it, and, and, and that there's more going on than you can imagine. And so much behind the scenes. And God is counting on you to not, not pull yourself out of the game. God's counting on, on, on having you on the chessboard. He's needing you. He's, he's, he, he's wanting another light to shine. He's, he, he's wanting someone to see what he can do through somebody staying in the game. And not, a, not just being a tit-for-tat kind of person and not just being, a, you, know, a, a, you know, I want to quit. I don't want to go anymore. Yeah. Listen, God knows every one of us are going to go through disappointments. He knows that already. And this is a pastor. Perhaps he's been pastoring now maybe 25 years, 30 years in one place, a difficult place. And he's saying, listen, set your mind that before you get to your next test, trial, tribulation, that you're not going to get into a moment that's going to depress you and push you over here and make you lose your faith, make you lose your trust, make you lose your hope in God. Count it all joy. Why joy? Well, the Bible tells us that Jesus, when he was headed to the cross, he didn't want to go to the cross. He despised the shame of the cross. But the Bible says that for the joy that was set before him, he looked on the other side of the cross and he found joy in the fact that God was with him. God would never leave him, never forsake him. And whatever he went through, God would be with him and he would come out the other side shining and everything was going to be okay. God was going to make everything okay. He trusted God. And this is what James is trying to get us to do and trying to get these, these, these Jews who are scattered throughout all the earth, count it all joy when you encounter various tests and trials and tribulations. Because the trying of your faith, the testing of your faith, the testing of your faith in God, it's like exercise. It will produce persistence and consistency. 
It's a Greek word spelled H-U-P-O-M-E-N-O in the transliteration of, we'll call it hupomene, okay? I don't know exactly what it is, but it could be hupomeno as well, okay? I don't speak Greek. No one does, but not that Greek. But uh, well, a few people might, but they're weird. Uh, <laughs> I used to be one of those people. We used to sit around and talk Greek to one another. And uh, didn't even, I, I knew 18 words. I could say them all in one sentence. Um, but uh, it, it, it doesn't mean just to put up with it. It means to press through it. It means to push through. To decide you're going through. I'm going through this. This is not stopping me. I'm not going to lose patience in the process. I'm not just enduring. I'm not just putting up with. I'm pressing through to remain consistent under pressure. To not crack. A diamond is nothing but an old piece of coal that made good under pressure. It just didn't crack. The trying and the testing of your faith produces patience. And look what he said. But let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. He's saying that this process that he has already ordained, that if we will reach for patience instead of reaching for passion, if we will allow patience instead of passion to be our God, passion, emotion can often drive us right into a ditch pretty fast. He's encouraging us. To let patience have its perfect work. That we may be perfect. That we may be complete. Let patience have its full work in your life. Just remaining persistent and consistent and remaining constant under pressure will work for you and it will bring you to a completeness so that you can be perfect and complete and lack nothing. That's a process. Verse 5 begins a new subject, so I'll hold right here and I'll encourage us to embrace what this pastor is attempting to share about our need to decide before and even during and even after a problem that we are not going to allow the problem to get in command of our life. The problem, not going to allow the problem to manipulate me, to control me, to decide if I'm going to be happy or sad. I'm going to find my joy in Christ. I'm going to realize that he's with me. He's going to be with me. He won't forsake me. He won't leave me. And I can let this persistent faith 
in Christ. My continued faith, my continued trust. I'm going to remain constant trusting him. I'm not going to quit believing him despite the pressure. And he said, this pastor, he said, that'll work. It'll have, it, it'll have its complete work. Why give up? Why quit? Why stop trusting him? Trust him.